For those of you who are fellowship regulars, you know that I was away last week and we had a good time. Thank you for praying for us. I travel less well as the years go. And part of that is I miss you guys. And uh, I really do miss the folks of our local church. I miss you. And I know my family misses you when we're away. And so it's always good to be back. Well, Kirby read Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 20 for us. And that's where we're going to occupy our study this morning. So let's go ahead and pray. And then we will begin our study. Father, give us grace to learn from this rich passage this morning. Oh Lord, direct our thoughts. Oh Lord, what Paul is going to propose to us this morning is radical. It's so far-reaching in its scope and it's so relevant. It's brilliant in its simplicity and in its comprehensive rule for life in Christ Jesus. And what we'll cover today is just the first step in what is the life of Christ. What is the life of walking in Christ. So help us now to formulate our thoughts in a way that would glorify you. Or keep from me a judgmental spirit, a harshness that does not commend grace, the pleading tone that Paul gives us here. That help us to come with an attitude of learners, seeking to be aware of our default setting to go toward a Gentile way. But Lord, help us to identify ourselves and live and walk in and through our Lord, who gave himself for us. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. One of the marvels of our country is its rich diversity of people. I don't say that by any means of criticism at all. More as an observation. Our nation is filled with subgroups and subgroups of those subgroups that are numerous and wide you can, you can find a large, thriving community of people for just about any endeavor or distinction that you can imagine. Let's take just our little state of Utah as a brief example. There is, in Salt Lake City, a thriving community of Russian Christians. There's a thriving Polynesian community. There's a thriving Peruvian community. Just a little bit north of there in Bountiful, there's a thriving Japanese community. If you don't want to gather... A, oh, in, in, in Ogden, there's a thriving Latin American community that doesn't congregate around what nation they're from, but around what city of the country that they're from. There's a town, there's a section dedicated to Oaxaca and a section dedicated to Guadalajara and so on and so forth. If you don't like gathering around an ethnicity or a nationality, you can gather around a hobby. There are communities of motorcyclists. Hundreds of them bomb around the valley every year looking like they're having so much fun. You know. There's, did you know there's a neighborhood down in St. George, a thriving community of private pilots? 
the neighborhood covenant stipulates that they attach a large airplane hangar to the side of their house and everybody in that neighborhood either owns their own plane or the hangar that they can park their plane in at the very least. There's a private runway that goes through the neighborhood and they congregate and gather. It's a thriving community around flight. There are, of course, communities that thrive for less honorable reasons. Utah is home to polygamous communities, polyamorous communities, and free love communes and communities, and LGBTQ communities. They all have very distinct dress and values within that community, don't they? Yet they're essentially, or as different as they look and sound and talk and walk, they're gathering around the same thing, an act of intimacy. Suffice it to say, there's a lot of diversity in our state, isn't there? And wouldn't you know it, our state is criticized for its lack of diversity as compared with the other states in our country. It's really, a, it's really an amazing thing, isn't it? Did you know that when the Apostle Paul was talking to the people at Ephesus, he was talking to people who were no strangers to this sort of diversity. Rome was a marvel, an ancient marvel of ethnic and linguistic and cultural diversity. And Ephesus, the city of Ephesus, was at the top of the list for different languages and races and ethnicities and people. The, the city was awash, was thriving with diversity. And so the Apostle Paul is trying to get these Christians to see past whatever little subgroup they came from and look to the Lord who bought them. Now, what Paul is getting at here is very important for us to understand. And I want to be very clear about something before we proceed any farther. Paul's approach to this is really brilliant. Think of all the ways he could have told Christians to identify themselves that we could adhere to today. That you need a certain type of dress or language or haircut or something like that to identify yourselves. And Paul just goes right past all those easy and obvious things that we can see. And what he tells us is there is, there is a way of thinking in all these diverse groups that we have to actively avoid. Now that thinking isn't always 180 degrees off of truth. Sometimes it's a very subtle difference in the way of thinking that has fallen. It leads to a way of life that isn't good. But it's a very subtle difference from the truth. And we will encounter those differences at every phase in our life. I find that those differences when you're first saved are quite dramatic. 
There's big differences that have to be made. But as you walk with the Lord, those, those little Gentile ways of thinking, as we'll see, those little subtle ways of thinking become harder and harder to identify. And what's more, we will never ever outgrow their influence on us until we get to glory. Whether you're young or whether you're old, whether you're rich or whether you're poor, whether you're young in Christ or old, there will be subtle points of thinking that will take your life in a negative direction. And you have to identify those and actively repudiate them for the way of Christ. This is what Paul is getting at, and that's where we'll end. Let me say one more thing before we move on. It's very easy when taking a text like this for the preacher to stand up and rail against all the evils of society. I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands for those of us who've heard sermons like that because if you've been in a church for any length of time, you've heard sermons like that, haven't you? The trouble with that is they tend to let us feel very self-righteous, don't they? I'm fine and everybody out there is wrong. And we pat ourselves on the back and we leave totally unchanged, not identifying that that is actually a Gentile way of thinking that Paul is telling us to avoid. You see, what I want to do today is be very transparent. I want, I want today to be instructive. I want it to have the tone that Paul had when he was writing this. More than anything else, today I want to teach. And so if I slip into preacher mode and rail, I apologize in advance. I will tell on myself at the end, fair enough? But let's get into the text now and let Paul teach us on a proper way to think. Okay? Just review very quickly. We've been out of Ephesians for a couple of weeks. I was thankful to hear that Pastor Chris preached Mother's Day sermon last week. I hope it was a blessing to all of you uh, moms and everybody else who benefit from our moms. But Paul's been describing in Ephesians 4 Christian stability. He wants us to be stable in our Christian walk. And what he's been doing so far is he's been talking about this stability in a collective sense. God has given everybody gifts. God has given everybody teachers and apostles and prophets. And this teaching, the pastor-teacher's job is to teach and equip the saints for the work of the ministry so that the saints build up the saints. And it results in stability. And Paul's been talking, in a sense, collectively to the whole church about how the church helps the church grow. The church makes growth as the church ministers its gifts. Now, Paul is going to narrow the focus. He's not going to change the subject entirely. But he's going from how to gain stability collectively to how to gain stability individually. What can you do as a member, a single member of this church, a single part of this church, to 
find that sort of stability. And what Paul is going to do is teach us, not about any specific behavior yet, he's going to talk to us about the way we think. It's very important to him that we think Christ's thoughts after him. And so that brings us to our first point, Paul's admonition. Paul gives a new direction here in verse 17. He's Like I said, he's not going an entirely change of topic, but he's focusing the attention in sort of a new way. He says, now, now I want you to know something. Verse 17, now this I say. I want us to notice, you might want to underline these and maybe even draw circles around them or something in your Bible to note that there's a presentness to this admonition. If you were to translate these literally, it would say, Now this I am saying, and this I am testifying, right now. There's a presentness to this. It's an urgent need for us now. Furthermore, Paul is using a pleading tone. This word, I am saying, and I am testifying, the word testifying literally means to witness. I'm witnessing to be to testify as in a court of law. The defendant wants to defend his name, so he calls character witnesses to come up and testify to his character or his alibi or whatever that might be. Would you say that a a witness commands? Does a witness ever take the chair in front of the court and start issuing commands to the court. No. The witness simply testifies to what's true. And so what you hear in this sense is Paul's pleading tone. He's not coming down on us with a a, a sledgehammer. He's pleading with us in a testifying to the truth kind of way. I'm I'm testifying to you right now. I'm pleading with you. I'm begging you. That you no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. Now, this word, no longer, that you must no longer, no longer is specific in the text. And what does that tell us? You see, Paul wasn't a newcomer to Ephesus. He'd come to the city many years before. He planted this church, which is now thriving. They've had Silas as a pastor. They've had Peter as a pastor. At present, Timothy, his protege, is probably the pastor. Jesus talks to this church in the second chapter of Revelation. He tells them, I know your works. You've You've done amazing things for the Lord. In fact, it could be argued that Ephesus was the center of Christianity at this point. He's not dealing with new Christians. And what does he have to tell them? Stop walking like Gentiles. What Paul's getting at is that simply because we're sinners, redeemed sinners, but simply because we're sinners, we are always going to have this default setting back to all of these ways of thinking that we've been called out of. And every culture, every generation of every culture 
has nuances of thinking that may or may not be right, but we assume that they are simply because we're from that culture. When I was on the airplane flying back here to Utah, I watched a documentary. And it was noted on the documentary that back then, nobody ever talked about money among themselves. And now money is a frequent topic of conversation. And there were these uh, dear people, older, talking about how it was just a taboo topic. And we can see how that shifts over time. And so, it, like I say, in every culture, in every generation, there's these ways of thinking that are so subtle and they infiltrate. And Paul is saying, you have to be on the lookout for that. No longer do this. There's a, a default setting that you're, wanting, you're always going to want to click back into. And that he's saying, no longer do this involves a repudiation of that way of thinking. It's not enough for us simply to affirm the true side of it. So powerful are these ways of thinking that unless we actively identify them and repudiate them and turn away from them, like long arms, they'll reach up and grab us and pull us back down to instability. Paul says, I want you to engage in this lifelong struggle of no longer walking like the Gentiles walk. Now, that brings us to our next point, the Gentile walk. What is it? Well, first of all, it's a life characterized by a way of thought. Notice he doesn't immediately begin saying the Gentile walk involves this act and that act and this act. He's actually quite uh, generic in his description of the Gentile walk. In fact, he immediately says the Gentile walk is that it's characterized by futility in their minds. If you want to know what the Gentile walk looks like, it's futility of mind that manifests itself in action. What does he mean by futility? This is the word for empty or for vain. In fact, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word vain is translated with this word. How many of you have read the book of Ecclesiastes? Ecclesiastes was written by a man named Solomon. The Old Testament says that Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived prior to Christ. He wrote almost all the Proverbs. He wrote a few of our Psalms. He wrote the entire book of Ecclesiastes, the book of the Song of Solomon. We have a lot of scripture from him. And how does that book begin? Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And this is the word futility. And Solomon is going to go on and list, and this is what Paul is referring to, all the things in this world that are futile. I have the list on the screen. I don't expect you to get it all. We'll make sure you can get the PowerPoint. So don't worry about getting all these verses. I noted in my study, there are 22, there, there are hundreds of verses that say things are vain. But I noted 22 categories. 22 categories of futility. Wealth, idolatry, lies, physical beauty. Charm is deceitful, ladies, and beauty is vain. 
futile. Hedonism. Solomon said, I'm going to seek pleasure. I'm not going to deny myself any good thing. And that is vain. Solomon says, scholarship. I, I decided to know everything there was to know, and I did. People marveled at his wisdom. I read a biography of Teddy Roosevelt, of all people. He was brilliant. He read three or four books a day, and he had this amazing retention of memory. He could easily move from a discussion of the um, Navajo Indians to the flora and fauna of North Dakota to the political situation in the Philippines, and he could do that instantly and easily and fluidly, and everybody would marvel at his mind. And he didn't hold the candle to Solomon. And Solomon said, that's it. That's futile. It's empty. The purpose of me putting up this list is not to tell you not to be worried about how you look, not to tell you to avoid pleasure, not to tell you to avoid scholarship or many words, these sorts of things. If you have a business, of course you want it to be a successful business. Solomon's point and Paul's point in Ephesians is that anything, anything, even good things, apart from God, are in the end vain and futile and not worth seeking. And that's what distinguishes the Gentile walk from the Christ walk. The Gentile walk pursues all of these vain things as an end in themselves. And the Christian walk does something altogether different with them. So Paul is going to move on here. He says they're walking in the futility of their minds. The results of that walk, the results of all of that futility is that they're darkened. They're alienated. They're ignorant. These are all present effects. They're all disastrous. In Romans 1.21 and Ephesians 2.12, the effects of being darkened the effects of being alienated or ignorant have eternal ramifications for people. It means they're apart from God. It means they have no hope of heaven. They've been alienated and await a Christless eternity in the lake of fire. These are drastic consequences for a dark, alienated, ignorant mind who's pursuing futile things. And the Apostle Paul says, where does all of that come from? Where does all of that futility, where does all of that alienation and darkness and ignorance come from? Read with me verse 18. He says that it is due to their hardness. What Paul has been doing is taking apart the Russian nesting doll. The outside of it is a walk. The next, in, the, the, the next layer is a futile mind, pursuit of a vain thing. The next one inside is darkness and ignorance. And then the core of it, the heart of it all, is a resistance, a hardness toward God and This, again, is an Old Testament theme that is quite rich. 
all talks of, uh, the Old Testament talks about hardness of heart a lot, as does the New. There is most famously in Exodus chapter 7, Pharaoh's refusal to let the people go. I used to ask my kids. God said to Pharaoh, let my people go. What did he say? And they would shout, Pharaoh said no. Okay, it's a rhyme. You can see. Pharaoh said no. Hardness of heart. God came to him and offered him deliverance. Think of the people who have received direct revelation from God. Pharaoh had a message from God with his name on it. And he hardened his heart and said no. Shortly after that, the people of Israel were redeemed. They were brought out of the land, and then they arrived at a place called Massa and Meribah. In Psalm 95.8, we're told, we're, the psalmist pleads with us, he says, don't harden your hearts as they did at Massa and Meribah. They were thirsty. They had a legitimate need, but they started grousing and complaining that God... They accused God's character. God brought us out into the wilderness to kill us. No, God wanted to show them a miracle. Moses, appropriately that time, hit the rock with his staff and water gushed out. Miracle. That's what God wanted to show them. But they couldn't trust God enough to see that, and they hardened their hearts against him. In Mark chapter 3, verse 5, it was a Saturday of all days. And Jesus saw a man whose hand was withered up. And he asked the Pharisees sitting nearby, what's right to do on the Sabbath, to kill or to heal? And they said nothing. They were so self-righteous, caught up in their rules. And it says that Jesus was grieved over the hardness of their hearts. They wouldn't even answer a simple question. And he said to the man, stick out your hand, and he put it out and it was whole. And they hated Jesus for it. He broke their rules. They wanted to regulate God. Well, in Hebrews chapter 3, three times, in 3, 8, 3, 15, and again in 4, 7, Christians who are in persecution, the writer of Hebrews is encouraging, begging, not to harden their hearts. Yes, you're in trials, you're in persecution, God is coming to you. Don't, don't let an outward circumstance affect your tenderness to the Lord. Or in Romans one twenty one, Paul says that people who refuse to honor the Creator and choose instead to worship the creation are hardening their hearts. What do all of those things have in common? What, what all of those things are is this basic human tendency to try to control God. I don't want to let God's people go. Who's God? Who's God? I don't know who the Lord is. He doesn't control me. I control him. And I'm not letting him go. God in the flesh, telling them, telling a man to stick out his hand, oh, you, you, God in the flesh, you can't do that. You're breaking the rules. 
we're the ones who made the rule. We said, we're, we're in charge. You're kicking us off our throne. We don't like that. What Paul is saying here in Ephesians 4 is at the heart of alienation, hostility, at the heart of futile thinking is an unwillingness to let God reign and let God be God. It's a default setting we constantly have to go back to, to recalibrate and let God begin to take over. Paul's not done yet with the Gentile walk. It's it's calloused. It's calloused. We get the word, um, uh, this is verse 19, I believe. They have become callous. We get the word analgesic from this Greek word. It means to deaden. Um, how many of you have gone to the dentist and hoped that he numbed that area of your mouth very well? Uh, the dentist always tells you, now don't eat or drink anything for, what is the number, like two hours after the procedure? One time, one time, I decided the doctor didn't know what he was talking about. Most of my awful stories begin that way, by the way. So I was hungry. I went, because they told me not to eat before the procedure, and now they're telling me not to eat anymore, and I'm, I was hungry. I may have been able to get away with applesauce, but instead I went to Chipotle and got a burrito. I bit my lip, unbeknownst to me, minimum ten times. And the next day, my lip was so swollen from having bitten it, not knowing that I'd bitten it, that I'd wished I'd listened to the doctor. My mouth was calloused, such that even when pain came to it, it didn't recognize it. This is what Paul was saying. The way of the Gentiles so deadens Gentiles, they're blind to the consequences of the way. They don't see, we don't see, that it's hurting us. And we keep doing it and causing self-harm. It's tragic. It's sensual. Paul says that this way of walking, this ignorance that is in them, due to the hardness of their hearts, they've become callous and they've given themselves over to sensuality. The word sensual, it's a hard, I, I, I don't fault the translators here, it's a hard word, to bring over to an English word. We don't have an English word that really captures it well. Sensuality is not so much a specific sin act as it is a category of sin that is wanton. It's excessive. Uh, words that are... Other, other types of words that are used as synonyms for sensual are uh, drunken debauchery or promiscuity or organized crime, organized violence. We say in each of those cases that it, it's, a, it's, it's a sin that's gone above and beyond even regular types of sins. And that's what Paul is saying here, that when the, when the Gentile mind gets darkened, when we are desensitized to what we're doing, when we're following the ways of this world, we tend to extremes. We tend to find ourselves in excessive bouts of sin. That's always the direction it's... It's going, unfortunately, and Paul says that, that that is rooted in covetousness. It's rooted in idolatry. Now, would you say that the Gentile walk has been a pleasant trip? 
as we've studied it. No, it's, it's, it's dark and it's scary. And those of us who are redeemed are, are groaning underneath of it saying, Yes, Lord, I, how do I avoid that? How do I not go that path? And Paul is about to begin instructing us. He says, but, verse 20, but, for all of that way of thinking, for all of that tendency, that shift toward extremes, for all of that covetous desensitization, for all of that hardness and vanity, for all of that, that is not how you learn. Now, this is a major and abrupt shift in the book of Ephesians. So you know, Paul, for the rest of the book of Ephesians, is going to begin teaching us what the walk of Christ looks like. He's going to talk to fathers and mothers. He's going to talk to husbands and wives and workers. He's going to talk to pastors and flocks. He's going to talk to us about how we work, how we live, how we love. Because all of these things are characterized by the way of Christ as opposed to the way of Gentiles. Which, remember, we have to be prepared to push back against because that is our default setting even when we are in Christ. And so, from this point forward, Paul is going to Move us forward. He says, you have not so learned Christ. Now, think of all the titles Paul could have used for Jesus at this moment. He could have said, you didn't learn Jesus that way. You didn't, you didn't learn the Lord that way or the King that way. You know, he, he uses specifically the word Christ. And it's, it's slightly unusual the way Paul uses it here because he's trying to highlight, you did not learn the crucified Lord this way. Let none of us, there's a, a, a song, let a hymn that we've sung. Let those of us who think lightly of our sin stare at a bleeding Savior in pitch dark while people scoff. That was the price of our sin. Paul saying, that Christ. You didn't learn Christ as Gentile. You, you learned him as the Lamb having been slain and the risen King. This is how you learned him. Jesus talks about this too. He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. A yoke, everybody, is a a yoke. A yoke binds you. A yoke attaches you. A yoke decides where you're going to go. So what kind of yoke is Christ going to be? A gentle one. One that's lowly in heart. And under the yoke of Christ, which is usually a symbol of burden and work and weight-bearing, crushing load. Jesus says, I'm different than that. Under my yoke, 
is the only place you will find rest. So take my yoke on you because I want what's best for you. And you will find rest for your souls. Learn of me. That's how, that, that's how you take the yoke of Christ on you. You learn. Now, how many of you, as we work through this material, it's all remained in your mind a little theoretical? The Gentile way of walking, there's a Christian way of walking. I get that in theory. I don't want to follow my Gentile ways, which I'm prone to. I want to follow Christ's ways, which are unnatural to me, but are good for me. Can we all get that in, in principle, right? We all get that? But how many of us are getting that really in practice? And it's at this very point that sermons tend to go off the rails. As I rail on everything about culture and society that I don't like, I don't want to do that. Nor do I want to point out an active live example lest you feel I'm identifying you and examining you. I don't do that. So I'm going to tell on myself. Okay? And I want you to share with me in the application of something God has revealed in me, to me, a Gentile way of thinking that is deep in there. And I would say over the last six to twelve months, I can't put an exact number on it, I personally have been really working hard at trying to pull out of my soul, but like weeds that pop up in your garden, that's a never-ending task, isn't it? Let me tell you what the Gentile way of thinking is. And I'm going to take just five minutes here, and I want you to walk through this with me. Maybe you share this with me, maybe you don't. But I think as a live example, you'll be able to identify. Let me tell you the Gentile thinking that I know is deep in me. Here it is. You ready for it? I have it on the screen. My biggest problems are outside of me. That's the Gentile way of thinking. My biggest problems are outside of me. There's 11% inflation. Gas is almost $5 a gallon. There is racial tension in our nation. I am the father of five small children. (laughs) All I want to do after a day of work, is come home and sit next to my wife and talk. But there are dirty diapers that need you. In fact, I changed one last night that I've declared should count as four. Okay? I want something nice, a, a family vacation but there are medical needs, some of which are my own. My eyes don't work correctly. 
my children have teeth coming in. Why do, why do they have to keep having teeth coming in? Okay. When I think that way, here, I start believing that victim talk. If only we could get the right politicians in place to solve these problems that I've mentioned. If only my kids could be quieter. If only my wife could be more attentive to my needs. If only this or that could happen, it would make my life better. It causes me to start searching and reaching and pushing into areas that are outside of my calling. I become short and temperamental to people I should be most patient and loving. I tend to become quite judgmental of those who don't share my political views. I begin listening to the sound of my own voice such that I become my own expert on all things relating to those things outside of me that are hurting me. And what's worse is I'm desensitized to it all and don't yet know how far down the hole goes. And it all goes back to that one point my problems, my biggest problems, are outside of me. Is that how I learned Christ? What did Christ say? Mark chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil. All of these evil things, I'm skipping a little, a few words to, so that I could fit it on one screen. All of these evil things come from within. And they defile a person. Everybody, you can say it out loud. Where do Greg Baker's biggest problems come from? They come from Greg Baker. My kids are not a hindrance. They are the medium to God's greatest blessings, grace, and mercy. The $5 gas, though I wish it would not be that, is a mechanism for my faith to grow and rely on God. This is a grace to me and my good. My biggest problems aren't out there. They're in here. And I need Christ daily to change my heart. What is following Christ? It is denying myself and taking up my cross and following Him. Now do we see? Now do we see? How a small Gentile thought can get you really far afield. And how a counterintuitive point of Christ centers you 
I've told them this. I hope you'll let the Lord talk to you. Those kernels of thinking are so strong. We have to repudiate them. It's not enough to observe Christ. We have to call out that Gentile point of thinking and push it away according to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 18. Now, the positive side is coming. Put on the new self. And we'll get to that next week. Let's pray. Father in heaven above, we are so grateful for this book, for the wisdom that the Apostle Paul has for us. Lord, give us mercy upon mercy to identify these points of Gentile thinking, no matter how diverse they might be. Help us to identify them as not of Christ, and as we put on Christ, help us to glorify Him as He takes further ownership of our hearts and leads us in the way everlasting. For we pray these things in His name.